This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It's Space Day. That's right. Space Night or Space Morning. It all depends on your perspective and your time zone. But the one thing is for sure, we're going to talk space in what has become one of our most popular hours. A bi-weekly tradition continues where we're going to tap into the expertise of Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Now, what a week to be able to tap into the expertise of someone who has Sky in their time. Even if it is an honorary one, everyone was looking up in the sky this week, either directly or through a television set at this balloon that was floating all over the continent. What does it mean? We'll get into it. But if you have questions about anything having to do with astronomy, space, sky, we we are going to give you an opportunity to ask the go-to guy, Dr. Sky, 800-848-9222. If this is the first time you're hearing Dr. Sky, he is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer, and he has a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. And he also has the Dr. Sky Experience podcast, which you could check out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. There's nothing like it. It is terrific. And on top of that... He has the best voice in all of radio, and I include myself in that comparison. Steve, it is always a treat to talk with you. Thanks, as always, for staying up late with us. Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be with you and the listeners in our bi-monthly event here as we talk about always we say what? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies, and even in a more lighthearted way, hey, if it's in the sky... I'm your guy. How about that? Well, so uh, to me, right, so you say bi-monthly, which would mean it occurs Uh, twice a month. I say bi-weekly because it occurs every other week. Is it both bi-weekly and bi-monthly? I guess we could say that that is every two weeks. There you go. There you go. All right. (laughs) The big story, as I alluded to, is this uh, situation um, this 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 situation involving the balloon. I know yes. you have studied this. You have looked at this. I have some pretty specific questions about the implications of this and what happened in this particular instance. But kind of give me your bird's eye view from 50,000 feet as to how this whole affair was handled and what exactly occurred. Well, happy to do it, Frank. You know, over the years, I've observed, like many, maybe the listeners out there, these different balloons that are stratospheric balloons and beyond. And here in Phoenix, we've had the opportunity and privilege to report on local television for years when meteorological balloons were sent up and just describe some of these out of Palestine, Texas, and other locations around the country. Scientists send up these balloons that look like these long, you know, elongated type balloons. And as they rise up into the atmosphere, the heat of the sun makes these things grow large. Now, some of these get up to about 120,000 feet. So lo and behold, one time in Phoenix, people were describing this. You could go outside, look up in the sky, and see this thing brighter than the planet Venus, easy to see. So here we go. I take the telescope, and I look at it, and I can see a payload hanging from the bottom of it. Well, that wasn't a Chinese uh, reconnaissance or surveillance balloon of any kind. But the story on this is it's been reported in the news, and this is the best I can give you. But I have a little backstory here that, of course, I want to share with the audience. We find out that this balloon... The military doesn't tell us everything, obviously, but what they do tell us is the balloon was first spotted as it was moving over the Aleutian Islands, you know, way up there near Alaska. And that particularly happened on January the 28th. Then the balloon, as it continued to move, many believe that it has maneuverability or capabilities not just to drift, but actually had some sort of way to be maneuverable in the sky. Then we find out it goes over Canada. And then over Idaho on January the 31st, Then we find out that the balloon is over Billings, Montana, on February the 1st. Well, the question would be asked, well, if it's invading our airspace, why didn't they shoot it down? And there's many stories about this pro and con. The pro of shooting it down is it violates U.S. airspace. The problematic con on that is, well, if you do that, they were claiming that it might land on inhabited areas, but the payload probably would have been destroyed if it was shot down. So we find out here's a backstory that I don't think many people know. Two F-22s from the 1st Fighter Squadron out of Langley Air Force Base 
Their motto in Latin is out vincere out mori. And translating that into simple English, their mission statement says conquer or die. They happen to have one of the largest, if not the largest, F-22 Raptor you know, collection for the entire military. But what's interesting about this, and it goes right to your name, the call signs of this particular series, two of these F-22s, were Frank 1 and Frank 2. How about that? So these particular aircraft, we find out, as the balloon drifts over toward the Atlantic Ocean, they find out that they're going to take, you know, one of their aircraft is going to shoot down this particular, you know, balloon. But why Frank 1 and Frank 2? And this is a fascinating story here. It's actually an honor, we believe, and I believe it strongly. They haven't officially said this. In memory of Lieutenant Frank Luke Jr., who was he? It has a lot of connection here to Arizona where I'm at. He was, of course, the Arizona balloon buster of World War I. Hmm. He shot down 14, how about this, 14 German balloons with these very primitive, but in many ways very effective biplanes of World War I. So that's the namesake. Now, I'm about four miles from Luke Air Force Base. And if you go out there, if people visit it, you know, on days when you can go in there to see the tour, you'll see a statue in honor of this lieutenant, an amazing man himself who did so much. So the military, that's what they're saying, uh, not officially, but that's the story that we're getting, that this was, of course, the call signs Frank 1 and Frank 2 in honor of Lieutenant Frank Luke Jr. I find that fascinating. Absolutely. This is something that the media doesn't talk about. I mean, I have yet to hear this, and I think we're breaking some news here and making some news. But let's go back to what happened. The F-22 itself. Now, I don't know. Have you ever seen, Frank, the F-22 at an air show or ever see it perform? No, no, I have. And, let, I, you know, I don't know if it's ever been at the Atlantic City Air Show, but I'm guessing right. not. Don't know that. But we were friends with a guy named Max Moga. And who's Max Moga? He was the leader of the F-22 Raptor demo team. So we got to talk to these people because... You know, our sister website that people can go to is simply photorecon.net. My brother and his team do mm. amazing photography as, you know, pro photographers at air shows. So the bottom line is we get to meet Max Moga. A lot of people did on the flight line. And we were watching this F-22 demo about five years ago. Frank, I have never seen in my life. This thing looks like it has alien technology on it. When it takes off, they have these amazing, powerful Pratt & Whitney F-119 engines, each of them in maximum afterburner, about 35,000 pounds of thrust. But the bottom line on this, when you see, and many listeners I'm sure have seen this, I've seen this F-22 in the demo. It goes up, it arcs up into the sky, and it seems like it stands still. And I'm not making this up. Never would try here at all. It seems like it can back up in the sky. It's, that's the illusion or whatever. And then it did a low-speed pass. And what it did, I don't know if they were supposed to do this, but it opened up the pod doors underneath where the missiles are, and that's usually some classified stuff. So lo and behold, we get on the ground, and we try to take some pictures of this on the flight line. And myself and my brother immediately stopped by the security people there, the MP saying, do not take pictures of the front end of this aircraft. Well, I gather there's a lot of secret and sensitive stuff there. But the point of the matter is, going back to this incident here with the balloon, it's fascinating is that the good folks down in South Carolina who had a bird's-eye view of this, and we see all the videos out there, you know, whether they're on Twitter or on Facebook or wherever, on the news. Allegedly, what happened is this particular aircraft was up in altitude. So the F-22, I don't know the maximum ceiling of this. It's probably classified. But they simply could fly up to that altitude. But what we know, and the simplest way to explain it this morning, is that they fired this AIM-9 missile. Now, we don't know for sure if it was an, actually an explosive missile. It might very well, and this is something we don't know yet, but this is where aviation experts are throwing this out. It probably was a kinetic missile. What's that? It's a missile that would basically just puncture the, miss puncture the balloon, excuse me, instead of having a massive explosion. Because if you've ever seen one of these AIM-9 missiles go off, you've seen these in, like, you know, dogfights in, in movies. The aircraft that they hit it with is literally obliterated. So the point is they don't want to obliterate that payload package. But I have another interesting story about this, if we have some time on this. Apparently, we're getting some information here, and I'm trying to get absolute confirmation of this, but this is what I'm reading here. And again, we don't believe everything on the Internet. So what we're finding out is the American military has some incredible aircraft, these spy planes, as we call them, going back to the days of the Kennedy administration with the U-2 aircraft developed by Lockheed and Kelly Johnson, who also helped develop the SR-71. We're reading that the U-2R spy planes called Dragon Ladies 
were actually up in flight in around these particular or this particular balloon. So literally, they could fly up that high. The pilot on this particular single-seat aircraft, the U-2R, he wears a spacesuit, just like you would as if you were an astronaut, because look at how high that aircraft can go. So we're getting information that says that this particular platform, the U-2R, which is a very sophisticated airplane, it has all these bubbles and blisters, as they call them, sitting on the side. There's a lot of electronic jamming equipment on there. One of the packages is called Senior Glass. It's a signal intelligence platform. Now, this gets real technical. It also has the capability of providing what they call synthetic aperture radar. What can that do? It can penetrate the ground, but it also has the jamming capability. So what we're hearing is, and I can't get a confirmation of this, but in, in the aerospace industry, you're hearing all this chatter, that those aircraft, the U-2Rs, the Dragon Ladies, as they're called, they were snooping on the balloon. They could actually fly up and near that and even higher. They could look down on that particular balloon. So don't always believe everything what we're hearing in regular traditional media that, you know, well, they just let it float over the United States. It may indeed mm. have been observed above that particular balloon and no need to shoot it down because we may have had the capability, more than likely, of jamming the signal. Interesting. That well, that's that's interesting. So let's say that's the case. Mm -hmm. Right. And obviously mm -hmm. I'm speculating. It sounds right, like yeah. you're you're coming from a, a more informed position, but mm -hmm. let's say they could uh, block and this uh, surveillance balloon, if that's what it was. The Chinese mm -hmm. are still claiming it was a uh, right. weather balloon, but let's say it was a surveillance balloon and we could yes. block it. Um, why then do you think that the Biden administration made the decision to shoot it down? Do you think they kind of caved to the political pressures of the punditocracy and the, the politicians all saying shoot it down, shoot it down? Why did they shoot it down? At well, that here's point? the answer. I think if those U-2 R you know, flights are real, and obviously we don't doubt the capability of these U-2 R spy planes called Dragon Ladies, they may have been able, we hope, I mean, from the American side, we don't want to be snooped on, they're violating airspace. So maybe the, the reason they didn't shoot it down then was they had enough information off of this platform to say, hey, whatever they're sending out, because remember, this balloon more than likely wasn't just, where was it transmitting? Think about this, right? It's transmitting information up to Chinese satellites more than likely. Where else is it going to send information? So the reason they probably didn't shoot it down, and this is just my guess, guess an educated one at that, is that they probably recognized that whatever was doing at that particular time, maybe we didn't catch, early, catch it early enough, but the reason they wanted to shoot it down, they figured this way, let, let it go into the water, because if you drop a payload like that from, let's say, over Billings, Montana, when it hits the ground, you're going to actually fracture all the electronic equipment. The water that it supposedly went down into off the coast of South Carolina is only about 47 feet deep. So it's not deep ocean. And we obviously know that there's crews out there, you know, Navy and military intelligence. And I believe they actually have some pieces of this that are actually being sent over to the FBI laboratory in Quantico, Virginia. But it's fascinating, don't you think, about how this balloon and these balloons are not just this, not the singular balloon. Mm -hmm. But, Frank, here's another one. And I'm not a conspiracy guy at all. But here's something that I'm reading also that has some in interest of this, you know, in, in the aviation community. It makes sense. That it's possible, don't think I'm off the wall here, I'm just repeating what I'm reading here, that these, this particular balloon, surveillance balloon, may have dropped what's called cicada or locust small transmitting devices. That if it did indeed go over Maelstrom Air Force Base, and what's that? That's part of our triad or our nuclear defense. We're in the ground, Minuteman missiles and crews, you know, you see a lot of movies where you have to have two people turn the key and we see a lot of crazy movies where one person doesn't want to turn the, you know, the, the key sure, to right. launch the nuclear missile. There is some speculation. I'm, I'm going to go way off on the deep end on this. I'm not saying I can prove it. But China has developed an amazing array of military drone swarms. There are these devices that come out like a stack. And you've seen, I think, some of these movies. I can't think of one. It was a, a movie in which uh, Morgan Freeman, I think, was in, where they had this big drone attack where they actually had, you know, explosive devices on it, and thousands of these drones came out. But not to get sci-fi-ish here. What if? That was uh, Angel Has Fallen with Gerard Butler, too. A very well, entertaining are, picture. Absolutely. Very interesting movie. But let me just say this and in conclusion here. Again, I'm not the expert on this particular topic, but in the aviation world, I think we're providing some information, don't you think, that most people don't even know about, and I'm glad to do it. But these particular devices could have been dropped 
And if they were, let's hope that, you know, what, what is a cicada? It's an insect that, what, burrows into the ground. Right. And they look kind of ugly if you're not a fancier of, of insects. And they kind of stay in the ground for a long period of time. So the bottom line is, what about the possibility? And who knows? Maybe this is true. Maybe it's not. But another thing, these cicada-type or locust devices, China has developed some incredible technology. So what would they be? Little devices that penetrate the ground that you can listen as a listening post or whatever, or a transmitter. I don't know, but that's what that, that's what also is speculation on these type of technologies. Well, so what is the the basis for that speculation? I'm all for uh, exploring that possibility sure. because it's really interesting. But right. uh, is is there anybody kind of speculating about that publicly? The possibility of these surveillance cicadas being dropped from this, these balloon this balloon? Well, there's a bunch of you know internet information. Again, mm-hmm. I don't believe everything I read. But if you follow some of these websites, there's some of them that are very, very good, and they really get into what I consider where I'm getting the information on this whole, you know, uh, story about the U2Rs, is a website called The Drive. Just go to it, The Drive. Mm. No, I do check out it. There's some great stuff yeah. on there, actually. And is, and I, we both agree that that's a source that I think is pretty credible, don't you think? Oh no, no, no. They, they, uh, they really do dig deep, and they've been ahead of the curve on uh, a lot of stuff. They sure do. You, you mentioned the F twenty two and uh, the advanced technology of it, and how impressive it is to uh, to look at and see in action. And how uh, I think you characterize it as you feel like uh, there's almost uh, advanced alien technology oh, yeah. on this uh, on this uh, this particular fighter jet. Right. What what have we seen from the F twenty two previously? Have we actually seen the F twenty two in uh, in combat anywhere? Has it or is this sort of the first major? opportunity that the military has had to showcase the abilities of the F-22. From what we know, Frank, yes. I mean, maybe there's some secret information, but how about this? There is something factual I can report to the listeners here on the other side of midnight this morning. This is the highest air-to-air kill that this particular aircraft, you know, in its category, the F-22, and once they hit this particular balloon, I'm, I'm guessing pretty much, or actually hopefully very accurate on this, that it wasn't an explosive type of, you know, sidewinder missile. It was probably a kinetic one. In other words, it could just have a piece of big heavy metal in there. Once you puncture the balloon, it's going to implode. But what happens when the pilots are flying, the code word for the success of the destruction of the balloon is splash one. And then that information was relayed to a signal, a group in the military called Huntress. That was their code, code name. And that is the Eastern uh, Air Defense Sector which gets the confirmation the word is splash one when you splash the balloon. What, um, you know, one of the things that we've learned in the last week or so is that this balloon is not an isolated incident. Uh, there were no. reports of a similar balloon over Latin America. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have now heard from the Pentagon that over the last few years, these balloons have wandered over American airspace um, a great deal. Do we have any idea how common the use of these surveillance balloons by China is? And as far as you're aware, do any other countries utilize similar surveillance technology, this kind of balloon technique? Well, here we go. Here's an answer that's really amazing, and it hits it out of the park. A good friend of mine who I trust in his observations, I mean, this is a really good friend of mine in New Mexico, who obviously observes the skies, does incredible sketches, really is a great astrophotographer, and knows every inch of the sky. He sends me a report back in, I think it was 2017, over Albuquerque, New Mexico. He observed toward the horizon in a pair of binoculars this incredibly bright object. And he takes a look in the telescope, and he sketches this. It's a roundish-looking object that had a square payload very close to the horizon. Now, it doesn't mean it's on the horizon. It means that as you're looking down range, this object could still be 50, 60, 100,000 feet up. He calls everybody that he can, military. He calls weather, you know, National Weather Service, meteorology. All law enforcement, everybody has no notification that there's something up there that they can tell him about. So if it's a U.S. meteorological uh, balloon, why the secret? So the the point is, yes, this has moved into American airspace And as we hear in the mainstream media, the Trump administration has reported that there's been a number of sightings crossing America in which apparently, 
I think it was General Mattis, didn't want to tell the president because he thought he well, would Well, yeah, don't get me started on that. I mean, yeah. that's just ridiculous <laughs> that uh, that uh, generals and, and even the Secretary of Defense are making <laughs> right. decisions about what uh, the, the totally commander-in-chief should, should know. Don't get me started on that. That's a, a whole uh, uh, the political can of worms that, uh, I absolutely that, know. that will t- right. take us down another path. Uh, if people have questions, by the way, 800-848-9222. My last question about sure. the balloon is is twofold and has to do with how it was seen. Now, there were reports early on that it was first spotted by uh, commercial uh, aviation uh, sure. sources, maybe even commercial airline pilots. Do mm-hmm. we know if that's true? And if there were other balloons that have wandered over the United States previously, why did people, be they commercial airline pilots or just people on the ground, why did why were there no reports of them being seen previously? Or maybe they were as UFOs or something. Absolutely. Well, here's another thing. There now, when we look at the whole UFO study that the government's doing, the UAPs, you know, unidentified aerial phenomenon, now into that category of the hundreds of unexplained sightings, maybe there were more or are more of these type of you know, so-called, what, not meteorological balloons, but these surveillance balloons. We'll probably never know. And since we can't get a straight answer out of the government on what they know, because that was done, what, in closed-door meeting with members of Congress, and there's so many secrets there. But how about this? If you all think out there, folks, and Frank, that this balloon itself has a big height above the Earth, 60,000 feet, that's really nothing, because I want to do a little memorial here. It's not. It's pretty much in the same, you know, in the same vernacular here. A good friend of mine was Colonel Joe Kittinger. Who was he? He was this incredible military man back on August 16, 1960. He went up in a balloon at 102,800 feet and jumped. Wow. He did a free fall. How, how high was it again? Give me that again. 102,800 wow. feet above the earth over New Mexico back in 1960. And I knew the man very well. He just passed away, sadly, back in uh, December. His free fall, get a load of this, was four and a half minutes. Oh, my goodness. And his speed of his body went to 714 miles per hour. He opened his chute successfully after the cords wrapped around his neck, and he almost perished at 18,000 feet. But Colonel Joe always told me, nobody will beat my record. Well, he calmed down, and he worked with Felix Baumgartner, a German, who back on October 14th of 2012 also jumped from a high altitude, higher than Colonel Joe. And he had a nine-minute fall. Okay, And I imagine nine minutes of free fall. And he actually broke the sound barrier. His body went 843 miles per hour. So we have gone up to these heights. But remember, if you go up above 59,000 feet and you're not pressurized, there's a lot of problems that you're going to have with your body, you know, blood boiling if you're not in pressure suits and things of that nature. So it's a hostile environment. But the point going back to the Chinese surveillance balloon People are wondering, well, why bother with balloons when you can just do all this reconnaissance with satellites? Well, in this particular case, balloons are still very important because you can do a lot of espionage, both electronically and also optically, because allegedly this particular balloon must have had some sort of camera systems. We await the results of what comes out of 47 feet below the ocean. So do we know if other countries use balloons like this? Well, yes, but maybe not necessarily uh, in, in a balloon type, and I don't want to scare people out there. But this particular story goes even deeper, that the United States government has a platform, people should look it up, called, and I'll make this stuff up, Gorgon Stare. And what it is, it's a sophisticated type of camera system, surveillance system, that's a- equipped on one of the, the drones that are flown up there, like the Predator-type drones. And now there's a lot of people, you know, in, in the civil rights area, they're, you know, human rights and things like that about how deep is this espionage and spying go. So from the air, there's so many of these platforms that can, be, you know, be utilized. But if people take a look at the term Gorgon Stare, I think they might uh, find themselves in a little bit of a quandary going, wow, look at what that can do. And where do we stop when it comes to the freedoms and, and rights that we have as citizens? How much uh, espionage? Do we really want to tolerate? But other than that, Frank, I don't know. I'm sure other countries, I don't have a list. I don't know. That's the honest answer. Mm. Which countries are also using this technology? But I would imagine not just the Chinese, but I'm sure the Russians have their own type of platforms. But I'm really surprised in closing on that one 
that they're even doing that kind of thing. Maybe the way they looked at it is, hey, let's test the Biden administration and let's see how much we can get away with and let's see what they do. But the real scary part, and this goes into darkness, and I hope it's never going to happen, is that if you actually had a small yield nuclear device that sailed over your country, as this one did, if you were to detonate that up in the atmosphere, God help us, at only 60 or 80,000 or 100,000 feet, that could cause serious damage in the electromagnetic pulse world. Right. No, I I mean, there are some very, I mean, we've both spoken with uh, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry uh, about the very real dangers of uh, an EMP attack, uh, both a naturally occurring EMP or an EMP attack. And um, I think that's a a very real concern. All right, we're going to continue with uh, Dr. Sky in just a minute. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Steve Cates. You can, if you're interested in what we're talking about, you can check out the Dr. Dr. Sky Experience. You can find it at redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search the Dr. Sky Experience. It should come right up. Nothing like it anywhere in the podcast world. Nothing like it anywhere in radio. And we're going to take your questions in a moment. I have a lot of questions related to space, but uh, the phone lines are jammed with people who want to talk with you, Steve. So we're going to give them an opportunity in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Have you ever been like a spaceship? side of midnight i'm frank morano joined for the hour by steve cates aka dr sky veteran radio and tv broadcaster and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise in the world of space and uh, he also hosts the dr sky experience which you can check out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com steve uh, before we get to the calls and they're uh, substantial and we're going to get to as many as we can in the next half hour i want to uh, tap into your expertise in um, uh, a discussion that i'm moderating this friday and this saturday with william shatner following a screening of star trek to the wrath of khan now shatner has boldly gone where you and I would like to go. He's gone to space. So do you have any suggestions that I could ask him about what it's like going to space? Beyond the obvious of of that just now, what's it like going to space? Anything specific that I could sound like I know what I'm talking about when I ask him about going to space? Well, you always do, really, seriously. But I would suggest this. Talk to him about, you know, his whole experience there. I mean, the whole process, because many of us will not get to do this, and it's obviously because of the time and the cost of going up in a suborbital flight like Alan Shepard did back in May of 61. I would just basically ask him the whole process. In other words, when you have to suit up, what what are some of the things they tell you? What are some of the things they tell you not to do? I mean, all the whole process, the whole experience, you know, what's it like? He's described it as being like a most spiritual type of an experience, which I've read, you know, from from his his backstories on this. But I, I would wonder just a little bit more about the human side of that. You know, they got you suited up. Why? How? The whole thing. What, what kind of seats were you in? How long did you have, you know, have to float around in there? What was the experience like as far as G-forces on the body? Because those are things you don't really hear about. It's up and down like a ride in an amusement park. But many things that, uh, and I might even send you some uh, items. Uh, great, via text. great. I, I'll uh, I'll look forward to that. Yes, but Frank, I just wanted to jump in with something that I don't know. I didn't know this, and I just read this off my computer. Doctor Peter Vincent Pry just passed away. You're kidding me. No, this is. I mean, not just recent, not just today, but I, I was shocked because you, like yourself, and both of us, have had him on programs before, and I'm totally, you know, blown away because right here on my desk. I have all of the transcripts that he always used to send me electronically about Iran, about what's going on with Russia and China. 
And here's something I want to mention to put this one, but you know, to rest hopefully on the on the balloon. If people really want to read some of the intention of the Communist Chinese Party, not out of hatred for them, but just out of reality, I suggest that they read a speech. It's called the Secret Speech of General Chi Haotian, spelled H-A-O-T-I-A-N. It was given in 2005. He was a high-level Communist Party, you know, member, a general. And the speech starts off with comrades, and it goes on for about 15 to 20 pages. And honestly, Frank, it's pretty frightening about how they have this mapped out, about why they believe strongly that they have, I guess the German word was Liebenstrom, about moving and expanding. They're talking about how they cannot sustain their world and their population without expansion. But it goes into some rather, I think, pretty uh, spooky things, and this isn't something that's made up. It was a speech given back in 2005 by General Chi Hayoshin. Wow. It's interesting reading. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. I, you know, I did email him recently, and he didn't yes. respond, which is uncharacteristic of him, and right. uh, I, that makes a lot of sense now, and I see now mm-hmm. that he did indeed um, pass away in August. All right, 800-848-9222. A lot of people have, uh, have questions. Yes. Let me begin with uh, Steve in Brooklyn. Hello, Steve. Yes, um, blimps, balloons, and dirigibles need to have a gas inside that keeps them buoyant in the air. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, we long ago didn't count on um, fire-driven systems that had just hot air balloons. Those were unreliable, and you couldn't get that really across the, the Pacific Ocean. Yes. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, hydrogen is explosive, so that leaves us with basically helium. Now, one of the things that I read in recent years is that helium, like many of the rare earth elements, is in astonishingly rare supply now. It sure is. And And that means that in our carelessness with the mines throughout the world that the Chinese have been gathering and Mm -hmm. owning, they get all the rare earth elements. They own already something like 90% of the rare earth elements for computer chips, cobalt, lanthanum. But it also means that they have enough supply of helium to keep a four-story building buoyant in the air. I don't know exactly, Steve, but you are right on. You're spot on. Yeah, that's that's a, not yeah. the power. That's not the propulsion system at all. Right. Ma- the maneuverability all. means that we have to have such things as mm-hmm. fins, either internal or out- external. Sure. But the whole point is they have enough gas. To keep such uh, dirigibles inflated, we don't use hydrogen anymore after the Hindenburg. Exactly. The whole point is we have ceded to the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese nation all of the rare earth mines uh, where they are able to, in fact, when we gave up Afghanistan. All right, Steve, I want to give give other people an opportunity as well. Anything else you want to add there, uh, Steve, to what... uh, Well, I wanted to say, Steve's spot on, but again, the real cut to the chase on this is look at the expansion China's doing in Africa. We're talking about rare earth elements, but he's right. Being able to possess as much capability of producing helium, obviously this is probably the source of how that balloon was you know, inflated or up into the sky. But remember, here in the United States, if you go to Amarillo, Texas, that happens to at least be, at least in my mind, one of the great helium, at least for now, production areas where they can actually you know, procure helium. But it's an interesting subject. I mean, I'd love to talk about zeppelins and balloons. I had a lot of stories sometime about the Graf Zeppelin the Hindenburg, and all the great things that Ugo Eckner had developed. And by the way, that's one of our great podcasts that's up there on the Dr. Sky Experience about the history of those balloons. One of the things that I was a little disappointed by last week is for all the discussion about the the so-called Green Comet, uh, XDF, I was looking in uh, in the night sky and the morning sky and at the uh, the times that they said that it would be visible. I even broke out the old binoculars and uh, yes. I didn't end up seeing it. I'm curious how visible was this comet to those of us on Earth? Well, Frank, not to take uh, you know a, a Nobel Prize here with with your show and this show, but I want to say this: shame on a lot of media outlets because it spreads like a virus. They had it all wrong. The Green Comet you'd read about in news articles and you know on television here locally without naming the station. They had this whole thing come up just before the Super Bowl, which we're out here in Phoenix. It's ready on Sunday. But they were saying, tonight's the night to go out and see the Green Comet. Right. And they're describing it, saying, look overhead at 3 a.m. Uh, Frank, the comet itself was so difficult to find. This is always truth and nothing but truth on this show. 
you'll always get that from me. I had to go out on one of my dinner cruises that we do on one of the lakes out here with a you know boatload of 100 people with a great meal. And in those dark skies, I take the binoculars and I see the smudge. And I say, wow, this particular comet ZTF is getting, unfortunately, the wrong kind of publicity because you really can't see it. But we always tell you on this radio show, on the other side of midnight, the real truth about stuff like this. It's by no means a bright object. So you and I, great, you know, to go out and take a look at the sky, we're not going to be able to see this. But we do have one more opportunity, and that occurs, believe it or not, on Friday and Saturday evening. If you look nearly overhead at sunset, do it before the moon rises, because moonlight wipes it out even more. You might be able to see two degrees to the right side of Mars, which is so easy to see. That might be one of your last chances yeah. to see the once in 50,000 year object called Comet ZTF. That's good to know. I will uh, keep that in mind. Robert in Suffolk, I think, has a question about the comet. Hello, Robert. Good morning. Yes, Frank, you're right. Uh, Dr. Sky, yes. What elements is this comet? composed of compared to others that makes it green? Very interesting. Oh, great, great question. What we're seeing on these comets, but this particular green comet, as it moves closer to the sun, it has a thing called a coma around it. And what it is, there's like these ices on the surface, Robert, that boil off when the sun, you know, gets it gets close to the sun. You're looking here at actually carbon monoxide. You're looking at surface material that has carbon in it. So what it's doing is it's going, this is a strange term, it's called sublimation. What happens in sublimation, let's say you have ice, it goes not from ice to water and then to a gas. Sublimation goes directly from an ice to a gas. But you're seeing those type of elements in that comet to make it green. And it has really three tails, two that are real, one that's fake. They have dust that are coming off. It's like a sandblaster, as if you were hitting something to burn off paint or something on a sidewalk. The comet is getting hit by the solar wind. Those particular things, as I mentioned before, there's carbon monoxide, believe it or not, like comes out of a tailpipe of a car. And you're seeing things that are, you know, other elements causing this color to look green. And even oxygen is, is diffusing in, off the surface of this comet through, through this heavy, heavy pressure of the solar wind. One of the things that uh, I did wonder about in terms of all the coverage about this Chinese spy balloon is what the Chinese are up to with respect to their space program. Over the last few years, it seems like China's been much more ambitious in terms of space exploration uh, than they had been previously. To the best of your knowledge, where is China with respect to the space program these days? Well, in many ways, they're equal or way ahead of the United States. And wow. if there's such a thing called a space race anymore, just know a few facts that are quite incredible. Their Mars mission that went there last year, for the first time, and I've said this before on other shows here on the other side of Midnight with you, we took a spacecraft to go to orbit Mars. Some of them never got there. Russians tried it, too. They just skipped by Mars. A couple of went into orbit. took a while. Then we sent what? a little lander to the surface of, the, of Mars. Some crashed, ours made it, a couple of ones crashed. Then we had little rovers like Sojourner and all the big ones like the one you see now. China did that in one fell swoop. They did a rocket that went to Mars. They went in orbiter. They went a descent module that landed there like a little you know, spacecraft that landed on the surface, and out of it came a rover. If you look at the moon, they're the first country to actually land a, you know, a spacecraft on the far side of the moon. And that's incredible with a little U-2 rover that came out of it that's running around under solar power when our moon, you know, the other side of the moon gets the sunlight when we're seeing the darkness. So isn't that incredible? So they're pretty much, I think, in many ways, some people are saying they're way ahead of us. Wow. But, but how did they get this technology? And the short story, which is a long one, but we'll make it short, is that a Chinese physicist, who worked with NASA and JPL in the 1950s and 60s, was then accused of spying for the Chinese government, and he was removed and sent to China. But that particular man, and forgive me for not having his name right in front of me, people can look up that general idea on Google or wherever. But you know what? This is interesting, Frank. He helped develop the entire Chinese nuclear weapon program, and so much of their spacecraft for orbital trajectories and how to do all this. So we had him first, and then he went over to the other side. 800 Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. 
Yes, I wanted to talk about the balloon. Um, Steve, you mentioned, first of all, you didn't say when those U-2 planes were sent up. Were they sent up when it was um, over the Aleutian Islands, or did they wait until it passed over the whole country? If they waited until it got to South Carolina... You're breaking up a little there, Larry. What? No, I hear him. I hear Larry. Good morning, Larry. That's that's the first question. My second question is, you mentioned the kinetic missile brought it down. Now, if this seems to be like killing a, a boy with a Tommy gun. I yep. mean, <laughs> if they could have pierced it with a, with a, with a small knife or something, would that, wouldn't that have brought it down slowly? And if they were Probably. In, in All right, payload, Larry, your phone's screwed up, so I'm just going to let Steve respond to your, the so questions. No, Larry, you gr- great questions. I don't know. I have no intel on when those, you know, but the U2Rs, the, the actual Dragon Ladies, were sent up when and where. It's just that I'm reading on that same website that we talked about before, Frank, you know, the drive, that that's allegedly what happened. But the reality of this is, you know, I'm certainly I'm not sure about that. But when you take a look at these, these, these technologies out there, it's interesting. So I'm saying from what I'm reading, I'm only reporting what I'm reading here. And again, always have a question mark in the back of your head unless there's total confirmation of this. And the military tends not to give you all the answers, right? That's what we're seeking. So look at that, a potential kinetic missile, which means it could have punctured the hole in it. Once you do that to a balloon at that altitude, implosion is going to take place and the thing is going to drop because you see the payload coming down. But their theory was putting that payload, which is what they wanted, into the ocean has a, quote, softer. But don't tell me that, Frank, if I jump in and jump into a pool with my belly first, it's still going to hurt like hell. <laughs> but, but in this case... They thought it was more logical that you'd have more survivable material off of that payload if it went into the ocean. And again, the ocean there is only some 47 feet deep, they say, but too deep for me to want to go down there. Same here. Hey, um, speaking of space, Jupiter, I understand, has some new moons, at least new to us. Yes. This is a great story because we always have the kids love this. When we go to do these programs, they always talk about, hey, Dr. Sky, how many moons does this planet have? Well, we had Saturn, which had the record for a while with like 83, but apparently 12 new moons have been identified over the course of about a year. And this takes a lot of time. Now, 92. How about that? And I'm sure, Frank, with the power of Jupiter, there's many, many more. But here's the story on this. Some of these are just a few miles in diameter. and thinking you're looking at an object 88,000 miles in diameter. And congratulations to my little Scion uh, you know, XB car, it just turned 88,000 miles. So I would have been able to drive, what, from one side of Jupiter to the other. That's how big Jupiter is, but it took me years. But these satellites, some of them go in what's called retrograde orbits, meaning backwards, you know, and then some of them closer to Jupiter go in what's called prograde orbits. And then they have one moon that they found out. It's called Valetudo. It's supposed to be the Roman goddess of hygiene and health. That's her name, Valetudo. She orbits 11 million miles from Jupiter, and that's incredible because the entire Jovian system, you wouldn't want to get close to this planet. You know, even those four Galilean satellites like Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, the radiation doses that you would get would just be so formidable. But isn't that amazing? I'm sure there's hundreds of more moons because Jupiter has such a great gravity attraction. It even helps and does have a tug on the Earth at now some 570 million miles away from us. We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a bit. And if you can't get enough of our discussion today, be sure to check out the Dr. Sky Experience podcast. You can go to Red Apple Podcast Network, or you could search Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite. Thank you. 
on such a timeless flight. With his interpretation of Rocket Man, I'm going to be with William Shatner this Friday and Saturday at following screenings of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. A little bit later in the program, we're going to talk with the man that directed that picture, Nicholas Meyer, and uh, we'll get some insight into what that picture's legacy has been over the course of the last 40 years. Still tickets available for Saturday, by the way. If you go to bergenpack.org and you get a couple of tickets, use the promo code NJ Frank, and you could save some money. Uh, we're talking with Steve Cates, aka Doctor Sky, about what is happening in the night sky and uh, what's going on in space these days. A lot of people have questions for you, Steve. Let's try and squeeze in as many as we can sure. here. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Don is in Long Beach. Hello, Don. Hi, Frank. Hi, Doctor Sky. Good morning. Uh, question. Yeah. Um, what kind of propulsion systems are, are we developing to get us to the planets a lot quicker than currently? Uh, it kind of compares to when they were exploring the New World, and you know, explorers yes. would come over with sails, you know, relying on on wind. So in space, it's similar. So just curious, what what's sure. your mind up the road? Well, Don, great question. I'll get right to it here. It looks like from a '60s program that the American government had the space program before they were actually NASA, let's say. They developed something called the NERVA project, which is a nuclear rocket. So you may have heard just recently within the last month or so, the, the government is now, and so is President Biden and a lot of people in the political world and NASA, excited about this new propulsion system that they would develop, probably not going to happen for the next maybe 10 years or so, to develop faster speeds and also there's another kind of strange technology called xenon. It's X-E-N-O-N. Xenon, if you look it up, it basically has some kind of a force that comes out. It's not a propulsion like using chemical rockets. It's like something that's done electrically. And it actually has like this most amazing blue, you know, environmentally, everybody would be happy in space that we're not, you know, pumping out pollutants, even though there's not much air out there, of course. But those are the two things, nuclear and the xenon propulsion are some new technologies trying to get away from what we call chemical rockets today. Steve, uh, we're talking about the rockets that are being developed around the world. In terms of who's doing the developing, what countries are the leaders in terms of rocket development? What are these rockets that are being developed that you're excited about? And does it tend to be governments that are leading the that are paving the way in terms of this rocket development, or does it tend to be private sector companies like SpaceX? Well, SpaceX, I think, gets the lead with the most powerful. But let's go back to the one, the big benchmark was Saturn V, of course, seven and a half million pounds of thrust. The next one we go to SLS's Artemis rocket. That had, and it did successfully launch with 8.8 million pounds of thrust with a 5.75 million pound payload. So in other words, you have to have more thrust than you have weight there. But SpaceX, listen to this, folks. This is interesting, Frank. The large Starship rocket stack with this new booster rocket will produce, wow, get a load of this, we need a drum roll, 16 million pounds of thrust. That's unheard of, which is absolutely the kind of thrust you need to lift heavy payloads out to the moon and out to Mars and beyond. Japan is developing a rocket called the H-3. It's their heavy lift rocket. European Space Agency has the Ariane 6, which replaces the Ariane 5. Ariane 5 was what helped put the uh, James Webb telescope into orbit. Location-wise, because it's near the equator, you needed something to push that big, heavy you know, spacecraft up and move it away at the Earth's speed at the equator, which is quick. And then finally, the United Launch Alliance has something called the Vulcan Centaur. So we have a lot of them. But to answer your question, it's a lot of government agencies kind of vying pretty much equally, in my mind, with uh, the private side. So a lot, a lot of great rocket launches coming, so stay tuned. As I was driving home yesterday, I saw there was a pretty interesting-looking moon in the sky, yes. but uh, there's a lot of talk about the full snow moon. What is the full right. snow moon? Well, we just had it. It happened over the weekend, actually Monday for, for the observers here and let's say, your area back on the East Coast and the listeners across the country. That snow moon is kind of interesting, the second full moon of the, of the year, obviously. And named because, obviously, snow is pretty abundant, we know, in February in this northern hemisphere. But it happened to be called a micro-moon. What's that? 
it's the farthest moon of the full moons of the entire year of 2023 because it's at its apogee distance or near it. So we won't get a close perigee moon until the 19th of February. But it's always wonderful to look at the moon, and some curse it, and I don't mean to be you know, vocally you know, bad here, because deep sky observers do not want a full moon in the sky. The obvious reason we talked about with the comet, the darker skies you can get, obviously, away from city lights. But don't forget, even in big urban areas like New York, Phoenix, the fifth largest city in America, you still have so many things to see. And I'll end off with this, Frank, this most majestic conjunction of planets in the making. February, of course, the month of love, Valentine's Day, what, around the corner. If you look in the southwest, just after sunset, everywhere this radio show is, let's say in the northern hemisphere, you'll see Venus. She's the goddess of love and beauty. She's easy to see in the sky, very brilliant, because she's cloud-laden. She's slowly encroaching on Jupiter, which is that planet we just talked about with the 92 moons, easy to see with your naked eye. So if you follow it over this entire month, You'll see Venus getting closer, so the love and romance between the two, they're getting closer and closer. And by the end of the month, and March 1st to be almost exact, you'll see them in a magnificent conjunction. I call it of biblical proportions. You know, some of the so-called stars of Bethlehem answers and theories were that these planets came together. They'll be the diameter of a full moon, and that's beautiful. Steve, uh, the hour has flown by, as it always do, on either the bi-weekly or bi-monthly basis in which we speak. It is uh, great to talk with you. I'll look forward to chatting with you in two weeks. Thank you. Looking forward to it, Frank. Thank you so much. Be sure to check out the Dr. Sky Experience at uh, redapplepodcastnetwork.com. And in the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground. America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.